Hello and welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we describe a trail that travels around the eighth highest peak in the world. You guessed it, we're going to the Himalayas. But you had to know that was coming. If you want to call yourself a trekker, your resume isn't complete until you trek the Himalayas, the mountain range with the Earth's tallest mountains. But it's not just tall mountains that make this trek fantastic. You arrive in chaotic, wonderful Kathmandu, a multicultural crossroads in a capital city. And then you strike out on this amazing trek, which is a lesser known and less traveled trek than the most famous treks in Nepal, like Annapurna and Everest Base Camp. But this trek is just as fantastic, and possibly even more so. The trek we're going to be talking about includes a side trip up a mystical valley, almost to the border with Tibet. And when all is said and done, the trip travels around 200 kilometers, or over 130 miles, through some of the most beautiful mountains on Earth, through villages only accessible by trail. It passes monasteries and farms. You stay in guest houses that serve homemade Nepalese food, often cooked over a wood-burning stove. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Manaslu circuit and visit the Zoom Valley in the Himalayas of Nepal. In October 2019, my good friend Tony Wong and I went to Nepal. How did that happen? How did we end up going to Nepal? I have a good friend and a colleague from work who planted the idea in my head a few years ago after she had done two separate treks to Nepal. To be honest, before that, I hadn't thought about it. Uh, But by the time I started talking to her about the idea, I had trekked in Europe and wanted to try something more adventurous. I frankly wanted to hike in the biggest mountains on earth. And Nepal is where you can find them. Nepal exceeded our expectations in every way. In fact, I really want to go back. The mountains, the culture, the people, and the food uh, were all fantastic and are worth seeing more than once. I hope you've listened to the last episode, the bonus episode, uh, number 14, featuring Rajan Simkata of Earthbound Expeditions, the trekking company in Nepal that Tony and I hired to take us trekking. I think that's a good primer before listening to This episode, is it primer or primer? I never know. Anyway, that would be a good first step is to listen to episode 14 and get a good sense of what trekking in Nepal is all about before listening to this episode. A little bit on pronunciation before I continue. I think throughout the conversation with Tony, I referred to it as the Manaslu circuit or the Manaslu trek. After talking to Rajan, I realized that it's pronounced Manaslu. Throughout this introduction and the interview, I may get it right sometimes and get it wrong sometimes, but in any event, I'm talking about the same thing, regardless of the pronunciation. So let's start the conversation with talking about the country of Nepal itself. So where is Nepal? Mostly it's in the Himalayas, but it also stretches out to the plains to the south of the Himalayas, bordering with India. Eight of the ten highest peaks in the world are in Nepal, including Mount Everest. 
Nepal is a landlocked country that borders primarily India and the Tibetan portion of China. Nepal is primarily a Hindu country, but also has a very strong Buddhist history and identity. In fact, the Buddha himself was born in Nepal, in Lumbini. Nepal is a very diverse country ethnically. It has many languages, though Nepali is the official language and the one most widely spoken. English is spoken by many people, especially in the tourist industry. Although, to be honest, a lot of the people who speak English, it is still very difficult for an American to understand them at first, though after some time spent getting to know them, it becomes quite easy. Let's talk about the area where Nepal is. People have lived in this area for 30,000 years or more. It was a a lot of separate kingdoms or, or smaller sort of principalities for many centuries. It became a unified kingdom by the 18th century with the capital of Kathmandu in the Kathmandu Valley. The Kathmandu Valley had been a thriving trading area along the Silk Road. And this uh, monarchy that was established, this kingdom, went back and forth between being a monarchy and a democracy in most of the 20th century, culminating with a civil war in the 1990s and early 2000s. This led to the formation of a secular republic in 2008. And the end of the last Hindu monarchy on earth, essentially, uh, by the formation of that secular country. It took quite a while until 2017 for them to actually have a first general election. And interestingly, the communists won the election. And as a result, Nepal today is the only multi-party, fully democratic nation in the world run by communists. As far as its economy goes, Nepal is still primarily an agrarian society and is certainly what Westerners would refer to as a developing country. It has about 29 million people living there today. Let's talk about the Himalayas themselves. The word Himalaya means abode of the snow or home of the snow in Sanskrit. The Himalayas are actually a series of several parallel mountain ranges that go higher and higher from the south to the north. And then after you get to the highest part, the the greater Himalayas or the great Himalayas, beyond that is the high Tibetan plateau north of those highest peaks. From a geological perspective, as we said, the Himalayas are the tallest mountain range on earth, but it's also one of the youngest. It's formed by uplifted sedimentary and metamorphic rock and was formed by plate tectonics. If you look at a map, it becomes quite apparent that the Indian tectonic plate is driving into the Eurasian plate, which is forming this mountain range. That is something that continues, and the movement north of the Indian plate into the Eurasian plate is about 67 millimeters per year. That's pretty fast in geologic time that these plates are colliding. Over the next 10 million years, it will travel 1,500 kilometers, or 930 miles into Asia. And the Himalayas are rising in elevation 5 millimeters per year. It's a very seismically active area, as you might imagine, as a result of this. As far as snow and ice, which you might imagine it has a lot of, there are huge amounts The whole Central Asia area, which includes the Himalayas, but is broader than just the Himalayas, 
has the third most snow and ice on Earth besides Antarctica and the Arctic. There are 15,000 glaciers, though they are retreating rapidly, as you might imagine. Interestingly, because the Himalayas are along the Tropic of Cancer, they're quite warm in some respects for their latitude. As a result, the snow line is actually pretty high, and so you can travel to pretty high elevations without being in snow. In some areas, it's as high as 5,500 meters, or about 18,000 feet, before you even reach snow. So let's turn now to the capital city of Kathmandu, and we'll start with a legend. The legend is that Kathmandu in the Kathmandu Valley was once a lake, and the story goes that there were lotuses floating in the lake, and the Bodhisattva Manjushri, or what's been um, described as Lord Krishna in another version of the story, but let's go with Manjushri, saw a bright flame coming out of a lotus planted in a hill. And he took out his sword and he struck the lotus, and it cut a gorge near Chobar Hill. And this gorge drained the lake that was in the Kathmandu Valley, leaving the valley behind to be formed. And according to the legend, the bright flame in the lotus became the Swayambhunat Stupa, which is the famous monkey temple uh, in Kathmandu, or just outside of Kathmandu proper, which is a site that Tony and I visited in Kathmandu and is, is holy to both Hindus and Buddhists. Kathmandu has today about 1 million people. It's the capital city of Nepal. It has grown rapidly in the last several decades. I think people from maybe, you know, who lived there 50, 60 years ago probably couldn't imagine that it would have a million people today. Kathmandu itself is in the mountains, but not terribly high. It's at 1,400 meters, so about 4,600 feet in elevation in the bowl-shaped Kathmandu Valley. This valley was originally the home of the Nuar people, though today it's a very diverse place with lots of different cultures coming together, as I've mentioned. There are multiple World Heritage sites in the Kathmandu Valley and in Kathmandu itself. There is Durbar Square, which is the old royal palace. Unfortunately, this was heavily damaged by a large earthquake in 2015 that we'll talk about momentarily. There's also the, the monkey temple that I've mentioned, Swayambunat, which is a 5th century stupa. Stupas are a large holy site for Buddhists, a large structure that holds a relic, so often the bones of some lama. And the monkey temple is up on a hill overlooking Kathmandu, and there are monkeys everywhere at that temple, so it's appropriately nicknamed. There's also the Budanat Stupa, which is one of the largest Buddhist stupas in the world. Tony and I visited that twice while we were there and really enjoyed it. There's also Pashupaninat, which is a Hindu site and where uh, cremations occur and Hindu funeral rites in Kathmandu. I mentioned a minute ago that there was a large earthquake recently. This was in 2015. It was a 7.8 magnitude earthquake. It was the worst natural disaster in Nepal since an earthquake in 1934. The earthquake killed 9,000 people and injured 22,000. It triggered an avalanche on Mount Everest that killed 22 people who were up on the mountain at the time. It flattened many villages and destroyed or damaged many heritage sites. 
In fact, it was so big that it had an aftershock that was 7.3 on the Richter scale. And even the aftershock caused deaths and lots of destruction, as you might imagine. So I definitely think it's worth seeing Kathmandu and spending a couple of days there if you travel to Nepal to trek. And Tony and I will talk more about that in our discussion. Let's turn now to the Manaslu region and the Manaslu circuit. Manaslu itself is the eighth highest mountain in the world. It's 8,163 meters tall, or 26,781 feet. The only numbers I could find as far as people climbing Manaslu were as of 2008, so these numbers may have changed, but as of 2008, it had been climbed 297 times with 53 fatalities. So that is a pretty dangerous mountain. As you can imagine, on this trek, we were going around it, not up it, so not quite as dangerous. <laughs> not dangerous at all, in my view. Manaslu is in the Mansiri Himal, which is a small, high subrange of the Himalaya, and it's about 100 kilometers northwest of Kathmandu, or about 60 miles from Kathmandu. Manaslu is the highest peak in the Gorkha district of Nepal. Trekking Manaslu has only been allowed since 1991, which is much more recent than many areas of Nepal. The trek follows an ancient salt trading route along the Budi Gandaki River and basically circumnavigates the Manaslu peak in a crescent shape as far as the trail goes. To hike the Manaslu circuit, you need to have two trekkers at least together, so you can't do it solo. Although I have to say, we did run into some people who I think were doing it solo. So I don't know if they just paid for two permits or how that was accomplished, but you're supposed to have two trekkers. And you do have to have a guide. And this is different than a lot of other treks in Nepal. For example, the Annapurna circuit does not require a guide. Until recently, doing the Manaslu trek required camping. But now there are tea houses throughout the route, and you can do it without bringing camping gear. We only essentially brought a sleeping bag to keep warm at night in the rooms in the tea houses, and other than that, we had pretty much day hiking gear. For some good information on the trek, you can go to manaslucircuittrek.com, which is a website that Tony and I looked at quite extensively before our trek. Also, if you listen to my last episode talking to Rajan Simkata about trekking in Nepal, he is a great resource for this trek and any other trek in the area. You can look up Earthbound Expeditions at enepaltrekking.com. The area that Manaslu is in has been protected since 1998, and the trail itself is actually part of a larger route called the Great Himalaya Trail where you can hike basically throughout the entire Himalayas on one continuous route. The Nepal portion of that trail takes about 150 days to hike. I don't think a lot of people are doing the whole route, but people may be hiking chunks larger than just the Manaslu circuit. The area has some of the great wildlife from the region, such as the snow leopard, the musk deer, and the wild Himalayan tar, which is kind of a like a goat. We actually saw a herd of some goat-like creatures. I don't know which ones they were. The Manaslu circuit has different peoples along the route. At the lower elevations, you go through villages of the Gurung people. And this is a, a Gurkha tribe that 
join the Gurkha brigades in large numbers. And the Gurkha brigades were part of the British army where Indian soldiers joined the British army and fought in the world wars. Uh, The Gurkhas, I think, were named that because they are from the Gorkha region of Nepal primarily. And so this area, the Gurung people, uh, are people known for uh, being part of the military. They are also called the Tamu. I believe that's the name they call themselves. They are primarily a Buddhist people, but also have some animistic traditions that continue. And once you get into the higher elevations, as Tony and I will talk about in our conversation, you see more Tibetan people. And you start to see the Mani walls and Chortans, which have stones with prayers carved into them that are characteristic of the Tibetan villages. And there are even some smaller sub-tribes or offshoot tribes of the Tibetan people. For example, in the village of Samdo, close to Larky Pass, Samdo is just before you get to Larky Pass, so it's the highest real village you go through before you go over the pass. There are Botia people who are Tibetan people, but a distinct group. In our trip, we also did a side trip up the Sum Valley, and there are the Sumba people. There are 33 villages in that valley with a total population of about 1,800 people. And that valley has only been open to Western trekkers since 2008 and was definitely developing as we went through. You could see a lot of construction of tea houses. We stayed in one tea house that had literally just opened a couple days before. And so that area is changing fast. Uh, It did feel like a privilege to be able to be there. But who knows what it'll be like in the future. So I hope this gives you some good context for where this trek is and what to expect a little bit. And again, as I said, definitely go back and listen to the interview with Rajan Simkata to get some more context for trekking in Nepal. But with that background, now let's jump into my conversation with my good friend Tony Wong about our trip to Nepal in 2019. Tony Wong, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. I kind of feel like this is your home away from home. (laughs) It's a good excuse to kind of see you in these COVID times. Yeah, so (laughs) we're recording this in spring of 2021. We're we're heading out of COVID times, we hope, in the United States, but I know uh, we're not out of the woods yet, and a lot of the world is not even close to out of the woods, but things are getting a little little bit better here as we speak. We're lucky. So a few years ago, I thought that all of the big mountains we were climbing in California and that we were hiking through, I guess, just weren't big enough for me. And I guess I thought, if you're going to call yourself a trekker, a backpacker, a mountain man, you really got to go to the biggest mountains on earth. And so I came to you and I said, what? Do you want to go to Nepal? I think is what. <laughs> <laughs> and you said, like, yeah, but I'm like. How? How do you do this? <laughs> I, I've never been hiking outside of California or backpacking outside of California, really. And so what did you think about the idea? Were you, I can't even remember, you were on board pretty quickly from what I remember. Oh, yeah. I mean, pretty much anything you're, you're willing to go on, if you're stupid enough to do it, I'm all in. So, <laughs> At that point in time, what did you know about Nepal? 
Uh, you know, I, I think Nepal, I think maybe Everest Base Camp, uh, you know, high, the Himalayas, high mountains. Uh, my vision was very snowy, rocky, devoid of green, barren. We'll talk about this as we go through the hike, but is it exactly like that? There are parts that are like that, but there are parts that are completely the other direction, lush, green, wet, beautiful. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so could you have found Nepal on a map before I asked you to go? Might have been challenging. I definitely would have said the kind of north of of India, but probably lost somewhere in there. Between China and India, that's what I'd probably shoot for. Yeah. Well, that's that's exactly right. So yeah. you were you were on it, man. And what did you know about the Himalayas in general? Just documentaries on Mount Everest. Lots of people dying on Everest. <laughs> Base camp, and it's full of litter and spent stuff and Sherpas, if you kind of use that term. I think that's it. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I knew. And what about Kathmandu? Did you know anything about Kathmandu? Nothing. I, I mean, the name was familiar, but if you said, where's Kathmandu? I wouldn't know what country. Yeah, I don't think I knew anything about it either until I talked to a friend who had been there. I, I think Indiana Jones, for whatever reason. Kathmandu. It does seem a little bit yeah. like it should be in an Indiana Jones movie. Maybe it was. I can't even remember at this point. And so you mentioned Everest Base Camp, and that's one of the most famous treks in Nepal. Uh, the Annapurna Circuit is another very famous trek in Nepal. And so I came to you and said, I don't want to hike either one of those. Let's do the Manaslu trek. And you said, what's that? <laughs> never exactly. heard of it. <laughs> So then we started trying to figure out a little bit about it. And I think you did some research on YouTube channels and saw some videos about it. And what did you think when you started looking into it? I was actually really quite excited. Very beautiful. And the mountains, I mean, I'd never really seen pictures of of Nepal in the mountains other than, you know, Everest. But you think, hey, that's really high and big, tall. And I was really impressed with the variety of terrain and the remoteness of it, too. I think that was definitely that's something that struck me. Yeah, and I, I picked this trail for a few reasons, and you've mentioned some of them. I wanted to do it, first of all, because I didn't want to be on the most popular trekking routes, just because I thought we should try something that's a little bit less well-traveled. Um, I've learned over time from doing lots of different kinds of backpacking trips that there are often incredibly fantastic routes that are just nearby to some of the more well-known fantastic routes, and you really don't have to be on the brand name trails to have a fantastic mountain experience. And so I tried to take that same approach in picking a trail here. Uh, I also wanted it to be fairly challenging because you and I like to punish ourselves a little bit. Suffering is not bad. Uh, <laughs> and I also wanted it to be pretty substantial and pretty long and something where, you know, it would be a full immersion kind of experience into a culture and a mountain range in a way that would be lasting in the way we think about it. And so I didn't want to just go on some short trip, fly all the way to Nepal and then go on a few day trips. So we looked for a trip of substantial length. Montesquieu is definitely that kind of trip. So then we went and we were thinking, okay, how to plan this trip and what did we do? I think you had said through someone, you know, friend or, or otherwise had used a company a tour company to kind of arrange some things. And so I believe that you said that was a recommendation to you, correct? Yeah, exactly. And so we went through a friend of mine who, who I work with a work colleague and she had 
trekked in Nepal twice before and had used this company and, and the company came highly recommended. And that company is Earthbound Expeditions. If you listen to the previous episode, uh, the bonus episode, we had an interview with Rajan Simkata of Earthbound Expeditions, and you'll know who I'm talking about and you'll know about the company. But for those who haven't listened to it, Earthbound Expeditions is a Nepal-based company. My experience with that planning process was that they were incredibly helpful and that Rajan made it really easy for us to plan this trip. Uh, yes, almost kind of ridiculous. I, I sent a number of emails myself. I could pretty safely say responses within 24 hours. And I think kind of the craziest part is we kind of booked this without putting any money down. If I, I think I remember he's like, yeah, when you get here, you just you pay. Yeah. It was kind of wild. We may have put a little bit down, but it, it, it was probably a pittance. Token, and if anything. Yeah, so we didn't have to put a big deposit down. Earthbound Expeditions made it really easy to plan the trip. Mm-hmm. Even though Monoslu is an established route, it's pretty much customizable, too. The pace you want to do is customizable. You can have a conversation with whichever trekking company you use to figure out what will work for you. And it can be done over three weeks, two weeks, something in between for this particular trek. And that's including the Tsum Valley, as we'll talk about. There's sort of a side trip that you can add into this trip that uh, really, in my experience, enhanced the trip quite a bit. I think in terms of also the, uh, the trip itself, there was what we worked out before we started. And then obviously with our guide, we were able to really adjust on the fly. So there's a huge amount of flexibility. Almost like you have a planned itinerary, then there's the reality of when you're on the trail and your your guide actually will make those adjustments, which certainly we had huge adjustments, I think. And so we had a guide, Hari, and we also had a porter, Podum. What did you think of that experience? And well, I, mean, I have two questions. One is what did you think of that experience of having a guide and a porter? And secondly, do you think a porter is necessary or would you recommend that people have a porter in addition to a guide? That's a great question. I've kind of gone back and forth because in, in some ways I felt a little guilty about having a porter because I'm used to kind of doing for myself. But at the end of the day, you're, you're giving someone who's employment. And it does, I think, change the nature of the trip because you're interacting with the guide and, and the guide can also interact with the porter and, and, and vice versa. Would I have a porter I would say yes, just because at the higher elevations, it really was a struggle to hike. And if by having that less weight really made a difference. And it can also, I think, make the difference between having a real leisurely kind of go, because you're, you're not carrying a lot, really carrying a heavy day pack versus carrying everything. So I would say yes. I, I want to say cost-wise at the time, uh, it was $100 to have the porter. Not including tips, but that's not a lot of money in my book for the 15 days. I don't remember exactly what the added cost to the price of the trip was for the porter versus just a guide, um, but it wasn't significant. And the they do live off of tips to some extent, and we did include um, substantial tips for both the guide and the yes. porter. Well-earned. Well-earned, exactly. Yes. Yeah, their tips were well-earned, and you typically give the 
the guide a little bit more than the porter. They're sort of doing more of the laboring or on planning and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, they're not doing as much as far as carrying because the right. porter, these porters carry enormous amounts of weight. Tony and I are lightweight backpackers in general. So the amount of weight our porter was carrying was pretty minuscule compared to a lot of the porters we saw on the trail. But nonetheless, it was an enormous help to us to have somebody carrying our bags, at least our, the bulk of our bags. All we carried was a day pack. Mm-hmm. Before we jump into some of the specifics and logistics about the trip, you mentioned the cost. Was this an expensive trip overall, as far as the cost of uh, hiring a guide and a porter and hiring a, a trekking company? No. For, for the adventure, we had, what, 21 days overall, 15 on the trail. I don't think we need to go into specific prices for this particular trip because that probably varies over time and of by course. which trip you do. But the reality is you're right. It wasn't that expensive. And if you're someone coming from the United States, it's well worth the investment to hire a trekking company and to hire a guide and a porter for this kind of trip. One thing I would say is if you're going to do Monoslu, you don't have a choice. Well, that's what I was going to say. You're, it's required. It's required. Yes. For Monoslu, it's required. So you do need to have a guide at least. And we did see some people on the trail. For example, we saw these two guys from Seattle, Len and Mike, I think. Mm-hmm. And they had one person who was sort of their guide and their porter because that's all that's legally required to go to this particular part of Nepal is one local professional guide. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had one guide and one porter for the two of us. Right. And one thing I'm going to mention about the porter is if you have a porter, just because you have one, just don't load everything onto their back. I mean, we saw them carry some pretty, I would say, embarrassing loads where people just said, I'm going to bring everything in the world because they're not carrying it. That bothered me in some ways. I'm like, wow. I know they're paid to do it, but bear that in mind. You know, you're having someone carry all that stuff. Do you really need all of that, whatever that is? That's a good point. I think some people just don't have a good sense of what the right gear is to take. And so they, as we like to say, they pack their fears or they overpack because they're just not sure. Uh, Also, a lot of them are not obviously uh, used to backpacking. They may be people who do treks and climbing and other sorts of things like that. And so they're not used to having to carry everything on their back. So they're not careful and thoughtful necessarily about what they're including and not including or the lightness of the particular items of gear. And we saw a lot of sort of just heavy equipment that you really don't need to take. And we should mention that we're talking about porters. A lot of people, when I tell them about our trip to Nepal, they say, oh, did you have a Sherpa? And that's what we mean when we say porter. Uh, Sherpa is actually a particular ethnic group in the Everest region, as I understand it. And so when you do hike Everest, when you climb Everest, you use a Sherpa because that's the particular group of people that lives in that area. But in general, what we mean when we say a porter is the same thing as what you would understand to be a Sherpa, which is somebody who is carrying your equipment or the bulk of your equipment throughout the trip. Yeah. What do you think about whether to include the Tsum Valley if you do the Monoslu Trek? I definitely would highly recommend it. I I don't think it added much in terms of time for us. Uh, I don't think it was terribly difficult. In, in fact, I would say it may be a good preview to some of the higher elevation that what we, you will face later on. I think you're right about that because for me, I still remember the Tomb Valley as one of the highlights of the trip. I thought it was a beautiful part of the trip. The monastery we ended up at, uh, Mugampa, was a fantastic spot at the high end of that. And I think you're right. For acclimatization, the Tomb Valley really adds a lot 
you can hike up to basically, I want to, it's 3,700 meters. So it's probably 12,000 something feet and then back down. And then you hike up to almost 17,000 feet when you go over Larky Pass. So it is a good preview of what's to come and it gets you acclimatized. But more than anything, it's just a fantastic part of the area and well worth seeing. The Montesquieu region itself has been open to Westerners since the early 90s, which isn't that long, really, compared to other regions in Nepal. But the Tsum Valley has only been open to Westerners since, I think, 2008 or something like that. So not very long that people have been even going on treks there. And we'll get to that as we go through the trip a little bit. But it's uh, to me, it was a highlight. And so if you're going to go all the way to Nepal and you're going to hike this trek through a pretty remote region you're likely never going to get back to that spot and you're never going to see the Tomb Valley unless you do it during this trip. So I think you should. Exactly. It's kind of, if you're out there, just go for it. So let's go through some of the logistics for this trip. What is the time of year to do this trip? The time of the year to do this, uh, if I recall, uh, is it like October, November, December, maybe um, January? It's after the monsoon, right? The soonest opportunity to go is when the monsoons stop. I think that's that window that I just pointed out. Yeah, the monsoon season, I think, goes from June through September, roughly. And October and November are definitely the high season. I think some people will push these trips even into December. I don't think January is a good idea. You're probably in the heart of winter there. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, even December could be tough, although some people do early December, I think. October is really the, the high season for the fall season. And then November also... Then in the spring, people also do March and April. And so you've basically, it's a fall or spring hike. As you mentioned, you've got the monsoons in the summer, and then you've also got really cold weather in the winter and darker in the winter. So it's a shoulder season kind of trip. For the time and distance of this trip, I don't have a great read on the distance. I've seen a lot of different numbers, but I can give a ballpark. It's about 220 kilometers or roughly 137 miles. We probably did a little bit more than that. We went past, I think it was Dharapani was supposed to be where we were going to end the trip. And we kept hiking another day. So I'm not even sure what distance we did. And we had to do extra on the beginning because of uh, uh, rock slide, mud slide. So we had, uh, we, our starting point was a little earlier. That's a good point. So I'm guessing we did in the neighborhood of about 150 miles. I don't really know though. Yeah. It is kind of interesting. You just didn't see a lot of, um, maps that gave distance, right? No. And I think one of the things that was interesting that you mentioned as we were talking about this trip in preparing for this podcast is that as you look at signs from one location to another location while you're on the trail, if there are signs, they don't even give distances either, right? Correct. They they list time. (laughs) How many minutes? Right. So they tell you how long it takes to get to the next spot, but they don't tell you how far it is. Right. There's actually a logic for that, I think, for international travelers. There's no conversion of kilometers and miles, just time. There's, there's a logic. Certainly easier for Americans. But also, I think it's, it, it helps you account for ups and downs, right? If it's a downhill of the same distance, you can put a, a shorter time than if it's an uphill of the same distance. So it allows a little bit more precision, even uh, beyond the conversion factor for Americans, which can be helpful. So we did, I think, 15 days of actual on-the-trail hiking. I think there's typically an 18-day itinerary when you include the Sum Valley. There 
was a 21 day itinerary for us, but that included transport and Kathmandu, I think. So 21 day total trip. Uh, but we did actual hiking. I think it was about 15 days, maybe 14. There was maybe 14 and a half. You had kind of a day of rest a little bit short hike. Yeah, that's right. You may end up with acclimatization days or very short days, or in my case, being sick as a dog days. Yes, you were getting it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll talk about that. But I ended up with a pretty severe cold. And this was shortly before COVID, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't COVID. A lot of people <laughs> up there seem to have whatever cold I'd picked up. So a few factors that I think are relevant for thinking about the time and distance. One is acclimatization, which we've talked about a little bit. If you're someone that has trouble at altitude, this trip goes to almost 17,000 feet or over 5,000 meters. So you really do need to uh, work with your guide and thinking about taking it very slow. Most guides, I'm sure, understand this and they want you to take it slow as you approach the higher altitudes. And so that's usually built into the itinerary, but it's certainly something you can work with them on in planning. Another, as we just mentioned, is the starting and stopping point. We actually went further than the sort of traditional trip. Uh, just because of circumstances, like Tony mentioned, there was a landslide on one end that blocked a road, so Jeep couldn't get through. So we had to stop sooner than that and w- start walking. And on the back end, we ended up going past where we had identified as a takeout point. That worked out pretty well. I thought I actually enjoyed that last day of hiking. One other factor, as we've talked about, is the Sum Valley. That was about five days, I think, that it added to the itinerary. I don't remember the number of days. Yeah, three or four, yeah. I would say it's roughly three days uphill and maybe two days back yeah. downhill, something yeah. like that. Every day's pacing was, I thought, was quite good, nothing too crazy. Yeah, I think that's right. And again, you can work with your guide on figuring out the right pacing. Mm-hmm. The and, they, and as Tony mentioned, they'll adjust on the fly if you need to, if it's going too hard for you, too fast. Or vice versa, we actually sped up our itinerary a little bit just because Tony and I were fine doing a little bit quicker pace. And we like to typically make ourselves work a little harder than most people. I would just say my experience and observations with uh, Hari, our our guide, he was assessing us early on to see what our capabilities were. Uh, I know that there were some times we did some, once we got to a place, He'd take us on an acclimation high, uh, hike to go higher up. And I think he really was assessing to see how are we reacting to altitude. That's a good point. And a good guide will do that. Uh, the elevation range for this trip, the we started at about 730 meters, according to what I saw on the map, which is about 2,400 feet in elevation, actually lower than Kathmandu, where we started the hike. And it goes all the way to 5,160 meters or 5,106. The sign actually says both. It's not actually clear what the actual altitude of Larky Pass is, but the highest point on this hike is almost 17,000 feet, definitely over 5,000 meters. Let's just say it's way up there. Uh, the Sum Valley part of the trip, this, this sort of side trip, is uh, from 1,430 meters, so about 4,700 feet, to 3,700 meters at the Mugampa Monastery, which is over 12,000 feet. What would you say to people about what they need to think about as far as gear for this trip? I would say you have to plan for uh, a wide range of temperatures. When we first started out, it was hot. It, I mean, you could have gotten away of shorts and, and a t-shirt, really, at, on our very first day. To, you know, at the highest points, 
things were frozen over and really I think layering up is, is the key here. Layering up is critical. And even though October is a pretty dry month, most of the time, I think you still do need to be prepared for possible rain and possibly even snow at high altitudes. Yeah. I think for any trip, I always kind of assume the worst is possible. This is a trip where it wasn't camping. We were staying in tea houses or small guest houses, but they, they may have a mattress but you also do need to bring a sleeping bag. Uh, yes, as well as travel sheets. Yeah, that's a good idea to have a travel sheet, sort of hostel sheet like yeah. you would use in a travel hostel. Uh, that's what we did. We had a, a hostel sheet that we put down on the bed first and then our sleeping bag on top of that. And uh, definitely bring a warm sleeping bag, as Tony mentioned, as you get to some of the higher altitudes, some of the higher elevations. It can be pretty cold at night and... There is no heat in any of these rooms. Right. It is very rustic. I think that's yes. one aspect that I loved. It was definitely a new experience. Uh, as I kind of point out to people, the places we went to, the only way in was by foot, by mule, or helicopter. And you don't want yeah. the helicopter ride. No, the helicopter ride is usually a way out and not, not one you want to take. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what about water treatment? How did we handle that on this trip? In terms of water treatment, I had a variety of things. I had a filter. I think I had the Catadyne B-Free hollow membrane filter, kind of used often in backpacking. I think I might even brought my Sawyer Squeeze too, but used a lot of chlorine dioxide, not iodine, excuse me, chlorine dioxide tablets were a big one because of the length of time. Uh, I'd find like the night before I might treat three to five liters of water and then carry my water accordingly for the day. Yeah, I agree. You definitely need to be treating it somehow, whether it's chemical or through a filter. Uh, you don't want to be drinking. If you're a Westerner, you don't want to be drinking the local water. You're, you're not going to be used to the local bacteria and that could be uh, trouble for you. So we definitely treated all the water that we drank. And during a lot of meals, we would have hot tea and things like that that were boiled so that you didn't have to worry about that. But one thing that you need to bring is you essentially need to have two packs here. You need to have a day pack that you're carrying throughout the day with your the things you might need from morning till night. Uh, but then you also can have either a duffel bag or another backpack that your porter will carry. We actually brought backpacks, I think. But porters, it seems like, are used to just carrying duffel bags. If you brought a duffel, that would work just fine. Yeah, they, they, they'll find a way to strap it all together. And yeah. It's amazing how they carry these loads. They put a strap that goes underneath the bottom of the load and then it goes all the way around and it's kind of a burlap cord and then they put it over their forehead and they put some kind of like burlap sack material to protect their forehead yes. and they carry the weight essentially using their neck muscles and it gives them good leverage, I think, on the way the weight is carried. But man, that's got to take some years of, of hard work to get used to that. Yeah. Interesting you should mention that. Like our guide, Hari... He carried a traditional backpack, but he never, ever did the waist belt. It's just, it's just they never, they just never do it. Yeah, I, I want to say because they're leaning forward, maybe up, up to forty-five, maybe thirty-five degrees forward, because the, with the forehead, they're placing a lot of the weight on that hip. I think is what they're doing. But it's a pretty ingenious system, and it, oh, and yeah. if you've practiced with it, I think it really. I mean, they carry loads that are enormous. Uh, some of these porters, so. It's definitely a system that works. It's what all the locals do. It's not just the porters that are carrying gear for Westerners. 
It's how the locals carry goods to and from villages. Even old women, it just they'd carry the basket with using this head strap. Everyone. Yep. Or you see young girls, for example, carrying loads of firewood on their back, and they'd carry it through a forehead strap as well. Yeah. Hardworking people. Oh, my gosh. And so for a map, there is a map called Around Monoslu that we use that I recommend. You can get that in advance. You can also get them in Kathmandu. There's plenty. plenty <laughs> Kathmandu's got plenty of stores for maps and also for trekking equipment. If you've forgotten something or find that you need something before you start your trek, you can certainly buy whatever you need in Kathmandu. Getting there, flights may have changed drastically since the pandemic. So I don't know how flights are working to get to Nepal or how they will work, I should say, once we're through all of this. But at the time that you and I went, Tony, the main options were either it seemed to be through Hong Kong or through Singapore for getting to Nepal. Yeah. And we went through Hong Kong. Yeah. We went through Hong Kong and had enormously long layovers in Hong Kong, which wasn't so bad. We got to go into Hong Kong and I had a friend that lived there at the time. And so we, we were able to hang out with some locals for a little while while we were waiting for our next flight. Neat little side adventure, urban style. One strange thing that I found about Nepal is that they, for West Coast of the United States, they have a 12-hour, 45-minute time difference. So it's not an even hour time difference. So that would be nine hours and 45 minutes for the Eastern United States. I heard a rumor. I don't know if it's true, but basically I heard a rumor that they don't want to be on the same time as India. And so they decided to make it 15 minutes difference or something. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. But bottom line is they're 12 hours and 45 minutes difference during daylight savings from the West Coast of the United States. Anyway, you know how to do this. Go on Google and figure out the time difference before you go. But that's uh, one of the things that was kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. So the way this trip starts out is you arrive in Kathmandu. And so what can people expect from Kathmandu and what were your impressions of Kathmandu? Kathmandu was really kind of wild. It, it's very dense. It's big. It's noisy. It's hustle and bustle. It's amazing little side alleyways that opened up to, there's a temple, right? And people who are hustling, selling the kind of your open market bazaar. But also I think what struck me is being in Kathmandu, I really did have a sense of being at the crossroads of different uh, cultures and continents and people. There were those who look very uh, Asian, like Chinese, as an example. There were people who looked very, I'll say, Indian. And you had other ethnic groups, too. So you really had this wide variety of uh, ethnic groups and who dress and look different and they seem to get along. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. In my interview with Rajan, which you haven't yet heard, he said a lot of the same things. There's something like 70 different ethnic groups in Nepal, and a lot of them live in specific small areas of Nepal. But in Kathmandu, all of them are there. It's sort of, if you go to the big city from wherever you grew up, you, could, you end up in Kathmandu. And wherever you grew up in Nepal, you may have been like everyone else there. But when you get to Kathmandu, there's a whole mishmash of people. And so there was really quite, you're right, it was ethnically very diverse. The food is interesting. The dress is interesting. Religiously, it's interesting because there's a lot of uh, majority Hindu culture, but there's a, not just tolerance, but sort of incorporation of and acceptance of Buddhism as well. And so there's a lot of Buddhist holy places within Kathmandu, as well as Hindu holy places. For example, we went to the, the Buddhanat Stupa, which is one of the biggest stupas in the world. These stupas are sort of like a 
a large monument uh, that you walk around that hold a relic. So I think in the bottom buried somewhere is maybe the bones of some ancient llama or something. But essentially, it's just a religious holy site that you can go to. And there's just, they're everywhere in Kathmandu. And there's some of them are enormous, like the Buddha Nat Stupa. I would say religion permeates the culture. I mean, just little little temples on the side of the road, little here and there. It, it's just incorporated as a part of their culture and life. Yeah, it really does seem to be part of daily life rather than something you do on a Sunday. Yes, yes. So one of the things that I mean, you mentioned, the sort of hustle and bustle, and to me, I, I at first it was just chaos is what it looked like to me. But even within a day or two, it feels wonderful, right? It feels like it's just kind of an interesting, lively place. One of the things that I found so interesting is this is a city of, I think it's almost a million or around a million people today. And I don't think there's a single traffic light. No, I don't think we saw a <laughs> single traffic light. <laughs> I mean, you just you just force your way in if you're driving. Like if you're in a taxi, they just go until, and if nobody wants to hit them, they'll stop and let them go. And that's pretty much the only system I could figure out they were using. I think it's one of these systems that the locals know how it works. Yeah. I know early on, there was a few times where I almost got run over. And it's probably because I'm a Western tourist who doesn't know what the rules are that everyone seems to automatically know. I noticed when we went out to dinner with Hari after our trip, he put his hand out. And basically, that was the symbol. You put your hand out, kind of like the stiff arm, the Heisman Trophy stiff arm. And you put your arm out like that, and you just start walking. And cars realize you need to get across the street. And to me, that seems a little dangerous, but it seemed to work. So we followed Hari's lead, and we didn't get run over. It's a lot of faith. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not just people in the hustle and bustle. There are uh, lots of stray dogs, and most of them are very actually friendly and not aggressive at all, mm -hmm. mostly just lounging around. There are cows, which uh, in Hindu religion are holy, so they wander freely, though not even in a city of a million people, there are some wandering around, but not that many not really that many. in Kathmandu. They get to go where they want. They, they kind of live without fear. <laughs> and then there are monkeys. Oh, yes. Monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> there are monkeys in Kathmandu. There are monkeys in the mountains. There's monkeys all over Nepal. There are different monkeys in Kathmandu than in the mountains. I noticed that. But there's even the monkey temple where you can go to, and there are tons of monkeys. Um, so they're, they're kind of interesting. They would show up at your restaurant when you're eating dinner or... Fearless. Yeah, totally fearless. <laughs> a kind of a reddish, kind of rust-colored monkey at the yeah. lower elevations like Kathmandu. And then in the higher elevations in the mountains, I think they were black with like a white face. Yeah. And but similar Valley, otherwise. I think we saw that. Yes, in the Tomb Valley. And so we ended up staying at the Tamil Echo Resort in the Tamil region or the Tamil neighborhood, which is the tourist district of Kathmandu. What can you tell people about Tamil? It kind of reminded me of... Chinatown in San Francisco, and it's just me. It's a lot of tourist shops, lots, okay? And many of them are selling kind of the same things. Do you want your prayer bowl, you know, metal one? Do you want a mandala that's been painted or so? Do you want uh, a prayer wheel? All of which we bought, by the way, eventually. Yes. <laughs> and I'm glad I did. But it, it's just piles of these things to the rafters and you know every every person's hustling right trying you want to come on in here places that sell tea which i still have some here and 
And, and that's actually one of the interesting things I didn't realize. Uh, maybe you pointed out at the toward the end of the trip. Throughout our experience in Kathmandu and other places, there were no beggars. Not a one that I recall. It's just people are hustling. Exactly. They were definitely hustling, but they always had something to offer. Yes. Yes. So if you were to plan to spend some time either at the beginning or the end of your trip, like we did, we spent time on both ends in Kathmandu. How much time do you think people should allow for that to really get a sense of the city if they want to do that? I would want to say, however you divide it up, at least three days, really. I, I would just to get a sense of it. I mean, then maybe if you had more time, you could really kind of dig in. But I couldn't imagine doing it in less than three, having three days there, less than three days. I couldn't see it. You'd be shorting yourself, cheating yourself. Yeah. If you're only going to go to Nepal once, definitely put together three days, whether that's a combination of days on the beginning and the end of your trip Mm -hmm. to make sure you see some of Kathmandu, which I really enjoyed. All right. So then when we leave Kathmandu, we have to get to a trailhead. And for this trip, it's not a flight. It's on the mad highways of Nepal. What was that like? <laughs> well, for us, there was a, you know, it was a luxury component. We did have our private, really called SUV. All right. So we didn't have to go on the, on the bus, the public buses. Yeah. We hired a car. We hired a car. And, you know, that was great. I mean, there's some areas that are certainly paved, you know, little road stops, rest stops, other parts. You get to see the beautiful countryside and people, uh, women walking along the road carrying large baskets with you know their forehead and carrying stuff. Uh, little rural towns that you drive through, and then bumpity bumpity bump on dirt roads. Yeah, and right, listening to uh, the local music, which kind of fun actually. <laughs> Definitely adds to the experience. It adds to it. But I def- I thought so. Yeah, there's two components to this. You mentioned the bumpity bump. We'll get to that. But you start out on these highways, which, like you said, they're not even fully paved at points. There are maybe some breaks in the pavement. But you're you're in a crowded highway, and there are truckers flying in both directions with huge rigs. And there's only one lane in each direction on what I think is probably the biggest highway in Nepal. But it's uh, it really does behoove you to have an expert driver. I would not try to drive in this area on your own. No way. Uh, so we hired a driver, and he would get around trucks, and he would just avoid head-on collisions on a regular basis. <laughs> and <laughs> but then, so you needed you needed someone who knew how to drive the highways there because it was definitely a skill set. But then, once you get off the highways and you're on the dirt roads. It starts out like a dirt road you might find to a trailhead in the U.S., but then it eventually it becomes what you can't even believe somebody would call a road. Oh, yeah. I, I recall distinctly getting jostled around and having to hang on to, you know, little handle, hand grips uh, on, on the vehicle just not to get tossed around. But it was fun. I mean, it was just, I, I just took it in as part of the experience. Totally. Yeah. I have a little video clip of it. And it looks absurd. <laughs> and it sounds absurd too, with the music kind of going on in the background. But yeah, it, it was cool. Yeah, and then we we start out when we finally get to the town that we were going to start in. We were at about I think I said seven hundred and thirty meters, so pretty low in altitude, pretty low in elevation at the beginning of this trek. And like you said, our picture in our heads is of ice and tall peaks, and we started out in what was a lush wet, hot, monkey-filled <laughs> jungle, practically. <laughs> yes. 
In fact, after we started, I, I want to say maybe after 15 or 20 minutes, really we're probably trying to make some adjustments, maybe strip down a little bit. or It, it, it was warm. I, I think Hari, our guide, he switched from pants to shorts at some point that first day. And so how did the gear we brought work for you starting out? Did you have any on-the-fly adjustments as you started out, or did everything pretty much work as expected? It worked out pretty much as I expected. Just having been in the Sierras, I have to have the uh, uh, Rail Rider Eco Mesh pants, which are, are pants on the, on the left and right sides. It has a full-length zipper with mesh. So I just kind of pulled those down, and I was ventilated, and that, and that was great. But... No real particular surprises. I was maybe a little surprised how warm it was and just I had to make sure to stay hydrated. That was key. And so then we got to our our first stopping place for a night, our first experience with a Nepali tea house. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about what the tea house experience is like on these tracks. Well, in terms of the tea house, the further, of course, you get in, the more rustic it'll be. And so for our first one, this was really kind of nice. It was a cement, maybe two-story building, electrical lights, probably could get radio. Maybe we could have gotten Wi-Fi because you're still close to civilization. The rooms, everything's clean. I'd say nice. Bed would be wooden plywood, two-by-fours. And then you have a mattress, you know, it's a couple inches thick. It's nice. And you have a pillow and they provide some blankets. And that's pretty much it, yeah. right? Like most of these rooms. And so I know the first night, like you said, it was, quote, I'll put air quotes here, luxury compared to what we had later in the trip as we got into more remote locations. Yes. But there is kind of a pattern to this. The pattern is basically two beds in every room, right? Mm-hmm. So you and I would each get, or we'd get a room for the two of us. And a little, maybe a nightstand between the two, a little small low, right. low table. And maybe a, if you're lucky, a power outlet and a light bulb hanging from the ceiling. Yes, Sometimes, but not always, not always, (laughs) not always. Uh, and then what about the, the bathroom situation? Early on, I think a lot of the buildings it's gravity fed. So they have big water tanks on the top story and then it kind of goes in. You can have, um, a lot of them I think are concrete or tiled. Uh, you definitely want to have the, you know, your shower slippers would be very important, I would say. They might have a bar of soap there. I would say bring your own and just have your own stuff. Place to hang your towel. And most times, probably going to be cold water. And it's and to be clear, there are some Western-style toilets in some of these locations. But for the most part on this trip, we're talking about... Squats. Nepali bathrooms, Indian squat bathrooms mm-hmm. where there's basically a hole in the ground with a little place to place your feet to, to squat down from. And then you have, so you basically have a hole in the ground, a bucket of water. Yes, that's your flush. That's your flush. Mm-hmm. And you can't put paper, uh, toilet paper down, the, uh, down on any, of right. Them. Even in Kathmandu, they do not want that in the, in the in Western toilets. They don't want it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So when you're on the trail, you basically get hole in the ground in a room, a tiled room, uh, with a bucket with a little uh, ladle inside, yes. so that you can flush essentially, hand you know manually flush by pouring the ladle water down the toilet hole. Uh, also, there's a little trash can yes. for the Westerners who use toilet paper. The Nepalis don't. Um, they've got a, actually probably a better system than we have carrying around toilet paper. But in general, my experience, and you can tell me what you think. But after several days of this, 
I found it incredibly comfortable and incredibly easy. And I actually think in some ways it's cleaner than using Western toilets where you're sitting on a seat that somebody else has sat on yeah. multiple times during the day. And so I didn't have, I actually preferred it after a while. It became, it's normal. I mean, just like any type of, uh, if you're out in the backcountry backpacking, you're going to squat. That's just what it is. Yep. Yeah. I mean, everyone has needs like anyone else in the world. That's the way they do it there. And it just becomes very normal. You just go, hey, no big deal. And one thing, too, is there's so much water in the area that they had water to kind of hose these things down or use a yes. bucket. They, they were clean because yes. they have plenty of water to flush and rinse it down. And so what about the – so we'll move on from the bathrooms. Sure. I think enough said sure. there. Mm-hmm. What about the uh, experience of mingling with other guests at the various guest houses and tea houses along the way? I think that can be a big highlight is, is you have an opportunity to meet people from different parts of the world, right? The memories that might stay are people that you meet and talk with and share some stories with. And just seeing different people from all over the world. Yeah, who were the travelers? Where were they from? Let's see. I think the largest group might have been the French is what they were saying. Um, yeah. There were Russians. I think there's some Germans. Again, some Americans, maybe some Canadians. Italians, I remember. Yeah. A few Spanish, but mostly, I think a, mo- a lot of French, Italian, a lot of Europeans. Eastern European, mostly Europeans. Yeah. I don't know if there was a lot of other Asians locally. I don't think we saw a lot of them. No, no. You, you, you kind of stood out as a trekker. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the meals at the guest houses? I thought they were really good, but the menu is somewhat limited. Or I should say we chose to make the menu limited for us. One of the bits of advice I believe that we were following is, you know, we want to make sure whatever we we were eating was cooked. So we kind of avoided raw, like if there was a salad, probably not doing that. Just because you don't know about that water that was used with it. Yeah. So, yeah, there could be noodles. They're, They're kind of a egg with noodles, which is kind of like a spaghetti. There was like potatoes, noodles, variations, but we love that green, is it chili sauce? Oh yeah. I forgot about that. They have a green chili sauce. It's everywhere. We kind of wanted to look for it and buy it and bring it back, but we couldn't find it. I tried to order it when I got home and I could not find it anywhere. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit. So I guess basically the dinners, like you said, it would often be potato based or noodle based. Mm I, I thought it was all very good. It's yes. local, fresh ingredients for the most part. Like you said, it's a somewhat limited menu because they don't only have so much that they can pull together. But I thought that the quality was very high and that the food was fresh. And then, of course, there is the meal that we had every single day for lunch. What can you tell people about Dalbot? Uh, Dalbot. It is... <laughs> it's the only choice, really. Because you're going at lunchtime. So you, you, go, you stop into a tea house. What are you going to get? It's always Dolbot, right? It's rice, generally a lentil, I think a lentil soup. Uh, yes. Some cooked greens, a dollop of something spicy. Uh, there's And curry, then the potato curry. Potato curry. And all, again, all fresh. And then, uh, let's see. Oh, and maybe a little crispy. It could be like a bread thing, but it looked like a crispy, almost fried Almost bread. like a tortilla oh, chip. Yeah, kind of almost thing. like a yeah. chip. And it, we would have masala tea. Also, I guess, known as chai tea, maybe in India. Exactly. And the beautiful thing about Dalbot is it's almost an endless 
pot. It, if you want more yes. refills, it's all on you. They'll come back like, do you want some more rice? Do you want some? And they'll give it to you. So I thought on this trip, I brought extra little, I brought protein powder. Like, okay, I might want to supplement myself. Total waste of time carrying that. <laughs> I didn't know. Yeah, it's fine. I should say it was, I thought it was helpful. I brought some snack bars like kind bars and stuff yeah. like that from home mm-hmm. and you brought a lot of like hershey's chocolate just to have a little boost at various times throughout the day sure. and so things like that i think those kind of snacks are great to bring and and you can bring a big bag of that and just sort of go through it as in ration it throughout the trip mm-hmm. but for breakfast lunch and dinner you've got fresh food home-cooked meals essentially yeah. to me that was one of the best features of this trip was just eating well and in addition to that you're hungry because you've been hiking so everything tastes good I, I never got sick of Dalbot. I never got sick of the potatoes and curry. I never got sick of the noodles with veggie and egg mix or whatever it was, you know, that we were eating. Part of it would change because, you know, along the course of the trip, you go into different regions, different, different ethnic groups. We At certain parts along the trail, we would see people would physically look different. The cuisine also is changing. So it creates, a, I think, a little variety within that. And honestly, for a trip where we're not eating a lot of meat per se, Part of it is there's no refrigeration up there. So if there is meat, you know, how old is it, right? But I think we're eating quite healthy, right? In terms of a Western versus a heavy fat, meat, protein, Western diet. So it's fairly, I'd say very healthy. Absolutely. What you mentioned the different ethnic groups, and that's an interesting part about this trip too. And we've talked about how there are so many different ethnic groups in Kathmandu and in Nepal generally. But certainly there are also different ethnic groups along this hike. When you're at the lower elevations, it's the Gurung people, and they're based in the the Gorkha region of Nepal. A lot of people may know about the Gurkha British soldiers from World War II who were Nepalese from that region. Uh, That's who those people are. And the, the Gurung people, they essentially live in the foothills of the Himalaya. In their own language, they're called the Tamu. But then as you get into higher elevations, people are more Mongol looking or Asian looking, I should say, and less Indian looking. So they look less like the people from India as you get further into the mountains and more like people you would meet in other parts of East Asia. Mm-hmm. And, and it's quite a noticeable change, as you mentioned. And not only does the ethnic group change from the Gurung to the Tibetan people as you get into higher altitudes, higher elevations, but also the language changes. And so when you're at the lower elevations, you're saying namaste, which is sort of an all-purpose hello, goodbye, peace be with you kind of phrase that works well for the Nepali-speaking people. But once you get into the Tibetan-speaking people area, you hear tashi delay, which is a greeting that that we were using with the Tibetans because they speak an entirely different language. Although many of them also, I think, speak Nepali, but it's obviously more polite to, to greet them in their own language. I offended everyone. Like, I had no idea about that. I was just saying namaste <laughs> to everyone, which I thought was hilarious. I don't think it offended anyone. I think namaste works, and it's a, it's a wonderful greeting. It's kind of like aloha or shalom or one of those greetings that really just covers everything. It's like all the good things you want to hear from somebody. So well, I think it's kind of just funny because in the States, you know, namaste is often, I think, associated with yoga. And, and yeah. it's often when it's said, I believe in, in the States, it's almost kind of a religious reverence. Over there, sometimes it's the equivalent of like, hey, bro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's just sort of, hey, how's it going? Yeah. It's not anything, anything to be irreverent. It's nothing to uh, take too seriously. That's for sure. <laughs> 
All right. And so after that first day, we started, I think, going up a canyon and we were heading toward uh, Jagat, which was, I think, our next town. And we uh, got along the we were hiking along the side of the Budi Gandaki, which is a pretty big river. And I think it's a river we followed for many days of this trip. This is one of the things that just struck me about the lower elevation parts of this trip was just the enormous quantities of water coming everywhere. I mean, there are waterfalls coming off the sides of the mountains everywhere. And you have this enormous, fast moving, glacially fed river that's running down the middle of the trail or the middle of the the valleys that you're hiking up. And it really just had this sort of Garden of Eden feel of just water and lush. And and it was, to me, completely surprising and not what I expected to find. Absolutely stunning. Uh, and part of it, I would look up at waterfalls. And as far as you could crane your head back, you're just it just keeps going up and up and up. For the locals, they have kind of this plastic or rubber tubing. They'll just jam it into a hillside, and that becomes the water source for their their little spigot, uh, you know, in the town or for their house. Some places they just let the water run twenty four seven because it's never running out. It, it was just wild. It was beautiful. I guess we shouldn't be surprised. It's running. I mean, these are the biggest mountains on Earth, so it's not a surprise that there's a lot of water that's coming off of those mountains. <laughs> One of the things that, you know, when you think about these big rivers, somebody might be wondering, well, how do you get across all this water? And Tony, how did that go for us? It's all about the suspension bridges, right? Or Yes. yes which yeah. I, I believe a lot of the Gurkha soldiers, they were saying, hey, this is from the Gurkha, Gurkha soldiers. You know, they paid for it or something like that in a lot of places. I, I think they build them. It's almost like in, in the United States, we have the Army Corps of Engineers. Okay. It's a military branch that actually does construction. And I think that's how they built all these suspension bridges that go across all the rivers. And you're right. They, they were they were pretty impressive. Some of them are very high up. Yes. And for people who are afraid of heights, it could be a rough go the first few times. But I have to tell you, after going over dozens and dozens of these, you, you don't even slow down eventually and you become very used to them. Yes. But some of them are quite long and you really do feel the sway of them when you go across, but they're well built. They're built out of steel. Steel. These are not old school wooden bridges. Large stock animals like horses and mule trains go across these every day without any problem. So they can definitely hold hold metal clad flooring base bolted on there. So yeah, they're solid. (laughs) They're solid. And so once we got to, after that first day, we basically left where there was any road. And that's one of the things I thought was so cool about this trip, too, is we're hiking through village to village, and the only thing that connects these villages is the trail we're hiking on. There literally is no other way, as you mentioned. It's mule train, foot, or helicopter, which is the worst of the three options, because <laughs> that's the only one you need to be airlifted. Yeah, that's, that's like your life flight helicopter. Yeah. Don't want to do that. But... And what we're all, it was also made something very nice. It was very rustic. It's not like you hear cars. And in a certain sense, there's maybe not a, a noise pollution that we're used to uh, in some of the more developed countries or areas. That is absolutely true. And, and it's one of the things that really helps. I mean, there is uh, Wi-Fi at some locations, but not all. So you're connected enough uh, every two to three days, at least in this area. I think on more popular trips like Annapurna, you're probably connected every day. Mm-hmm. But here, it was if we really wanted to be connected, we could be. And I have a feeling by the time any listener actually does this trip, every place will have Wi-Fi. It was sort of 
you know, being, it seemed like places that didn't have it last, the year before we went, uh, had it that year. And it just seemed to be a growing presence. It's a building boom. And yeah, that's another thing. It was a building boom, particularly in the, in the Sume Valley. And maybe we should talk about the Sume Valley. Uh, one thing I'll mention before we make our turnoff into the Sume Valley is that um, it was just before that, that we were walking on the trail and I noticed a plant that I had seen before, but I didn't expect to find growing wild along the trail in Nepal. And that was marijuana. Yes. And I have to say, I didn't recognize it for what it is. I'm kind of innocent or <laughs> blind or I don't know. I didn't recognize what it was, but other people did. <laughs> yeah, it just, it's crazy. It just grows wild all over uh, on the hillsides. And it, it, because we were there in October, it was in a time of the year where it really is, you know, has quite a smell. Like you could smell it right away when you came by it. So um, it was surprising to see. I didn't expect that. It was an interesting feature on the trail. Sure. So in any event, if that's something that you're into, uh, I don't think it is legal there, but uh, it does grow wild everywhere. So there you have it. So let's talk a little bit about the Zoom Valley, which is, as we mentioned, a really uh, a major highlight of this trip. And one of the things that you had just mentioned is the new construction. And our first night in the Zoom Valley we're hiking up this valley along a river gorge. We come out of a river gorge. We get to a place where we're going to go to the tea house. And this tea house is so new that they hadn't, they were still building it, I think, as we arrived. Like yes. it was the first week it had probably ever been used. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think in the room that we were in, they must have fell short of some material for flooring because they were using like closed cell foam. Uh, like what you would sleep on as part of just for a few sections, but they ran a little short, but yeah, everything was new. The pillow was new. The blanket that they provided was new. Yeah. Shiny. <laughs> yeah. I think the blankets were still in the package. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think when we came out of the Zoom Valley, coming back down a few days later, they had actually constructed a pathway in front of the building that wasn't there when we stayed there. Yes, that's true. I've got a picture of that. So it's a place that's rapidly changing. And I probably dare say yeah. what we saw there isn't there. It's going to be more built up. There's a, there's a lot of construction. A lot of tea houses are being, being put up. I think you were saying, really, this is becoming a more of a popular alternative to the Annapurna Trail now that they put a road through part of the Annapurna Trail. Yeah, I think that's right. And so despite that this was a brand new tea house, the amenities were still very rustic. Like you mentioned, there were some sort of gaps in the flooring. And a lot of these tea houses, especially in the Tomb Valley, you could literally see through the walls because it was just slats of wood put next to each other, almost like a fence more than a wall. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, very rustic. Um, but we did get a hot shower. Do you remember what the hot shower was at that yeah, place we're talking no, about? I think we got a giant thermos of like hot water, and then you've got your yep. <laughs> my bucket. I got my bucket of you know cold water, and you kind of mix it up. That was the best. Uh, I yeah. savored that. I was using the hot water as miserly as possible to enjoy that. It was great. It was great. The luxury. They give you a big thermos of hot water. And you get a bucket of cold water so that you can mix to get to the appropriate temperature. Mm -hmm. And you get a ladle. Ladle. And you essentially pour it over the top of your head. And you have to pay extra for a hot shower. Yes. But it's actually worth it because they have to, they're essentially cooking this on a wood-burning stove. Mm -hmm. They're heating this water for you. So they're having to use resources. Somebody had to go collect that wood. 
uh, or if they're using propane from a mule train, they had to pay for it. So there's, you know, it's, it's expensive for them as well in, in either labor or money or both. And so it's fair to pay a little extra to get a hot shower. Yeah. Um, but the hot shower is essentially a bucket of water that has been heated. Right. You know, before you kind of poo poo it, when you're, when you're out there, that is a luxury and you really enjoy, or at least I did. I'm like, wow, this is great. And we do a lot of backpacking where we don't ever get a hot shower. So jump in a lake. So it's all, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, that was an interesting experience. And there were several tea houses along the way where that was the accommodation. And it made it all the more exciting when we got to a tea house that had an actual water heater where they could give you a real hot shower, Mm -hmm. um, which you also had to pay for because they had to power the water heater with propane that they have to pay for. Brought in by mule. Exactly. Brought in by mule. But that was also a fantastic luxury when that happened on certain nights. Despite the fact that they were building new things in the Tsum Valley, There were still some old things. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting was the people who were farming the land as we went further up the Sum Valley. And we saw something that I just couldn't have imagined ever seeing in my life on a number of fronts. We saw a woman in a field of millet. First of all, it was beautiful because the millet was, I think, blooming blooming. or it was about to go to seed. So it was very pretty yellow flowers. And I didn't know what it was until I asked our guide. So that's how millet grows, apparently. So this woman was in the field of millet, and first we couldn't figure out, what is she doing? And then we noticed that there was a monkey, one of these higher mountain monkeys that are kind of black with a white face, that she was trying to chase out of the field. Maybe the monkey was trying to steal some of the millet as it got to the harvest time. And what I was impressed with is what she was using to chase the monkey away. Do you remember what it was? It was a sling. Yeah. That was awesome. Like, she had skills. She was using an actual sling, a piece of cloth with a rock in it. I mean, the same weapon that David slew Goliath with in the Bible, uh, <laughs> in the Old Testament. I mean, this is technology that's been around for a long time, but apparently works very well. If I recall, she was going at it pretty hard and going after those yeah. monkey, that monkey. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we're all the way up in the mountains of Nepal and we find someone using a sling to protect their fields from the uh, wildlife. So that was interesting. And then as we got farther up the valley, I saw something else that was quite old school, but it was mixed with something new school. We, when we got up into maybe the next day into a more open part of the Sum Valley, I saw a guy, uh, using a plow behind oxen. So again, another very old technology that's been around forever, but he was on his cell phone, of course, while he was walking behind the oxen. I remember that. That was a really wild juxtaposition. Ox, guys pulling. And I think there was a couple of older ladies there and, and wearing traditional garb. Yeah. He's got, he's, yeah. he's got his cell phone out. <laughs> and I think it might have been like drizzling that day and he had the cell phone like under plastic or something so it wouldn't get wet. So as we got higher up into the Sum Valley, the people became certainly more Tibetan looking, more Tibetan culture. You start to see... Um, some of the signs of Tibetan life. And a few of them that are really interesting are the uh, Mani walls, which are these long stone walls of of stone tablets with prayers written on them or carved into them, I should say. Mm -hmm. And those were interesting. Um, What did you think of seeing those? And the Chortons, which are kind of like a tower built out of the same stones. It was really impressive to see that. Because you, you can see some are newer than others. You look at the stone that it's, it, it's carved or chiseled on. 
And some of them were very worn. So I really had that sense of history. You're seeing something very old and generations. It just, that's, that's my sense because there's piles of this. And I think you're supposed to walk on the left side of the Monty walls as you go by them. And maybe that's the order that you're able to read the text in. I'm not sure. Or it just uh, is the way that it's supposed to be done for good luck or for the best way to receive the blessings of the prayers that are carved on these rocks. But when you are seeing Monty walls and you're seeing the Chortons, which are kind of a tower built out of these carved prayer rocks, um, you definitely know you're in an area that's Tibetan culture. And they also have what's called Kani gates, which are kind of a two pillars on either side and a bar across the top that mark the entrance to to various towns and, and locations that you see along the way as well. And that also seems to be a part of the Tibetan culture. Uh, in addition to prayer wheels, which are pretty common in, I think, all Buddhist uh, culture, or at least the Buddhist cultures of this area of the world. Yeah, I think what some of them, I don't know if they were structures, on, sort of like going through a gate almost. But remember, you'd look up inside and there was, you know, paintings. It was telling some sort of story. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's quite a few, some extraordinarily colorful. I have a feeling they're maybe Buddhist. Yeah, they're definitely Buddhist. Definitely yeah. Buddhist. There are maybe scenes of afterworld or cautionary tales. You'd, they're really very vibrant. I think that's one of the things that struck me for an area at, at the higher elevation where it's a lot of stone and a little more barren. The artwork, the paintings, incredibly vivid and bright. Absolutely. And so one of the highlights of the Tsum Valley was the monastery that we got to essentially at the end of the valley, and that's the Mu Gompa Monastery. What did you think of that? Well, I think getting there was was certainly interesting. I, I believe we woke up like 4.30, 4.45, maybe started hiking around 5.30 in the morning, just where there's enough light, a little chilly. Yeah, it just kept kind of going up, kind of a, a maybe a river to our right, and we, it would fall away as we would ascend higher. We did see some monkeys, uh, kind of a troop of them, actually, I think, on the way up there. And then once we were there, there's a lot of Westerners there, right? Because I think you can stay overnight, right? There, there, You can have accommodations there if you plan it out in advance. Yeah, you can, but I don't think you can plan it in advance. I think it's okay. sort of a first come, first serve thing, which is why our guy didn't want to go up there in the afternoon because we thought there might not be any more spaces Spots. available. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a neat monastery. It's not huge, but it's a good size. And it has, like you said, it has sort of dormitory accommodations where people can stay. And there was a there were several monks there praying and chanting. Mm-hmm. And we were able to sit and, and listen to that for period of time and, and actually meditate along with them if you so wished. That that was remarkable to be able to hear that chanting and a, kind of that deep throated chant. And then there's some humorous parts because, you know, there are people, I think we, I saw one guy, I thought he was kind of the, the, the lazy monk. <laughs> yeah. He was kind of the class clown, I think. <laughs> yeah, he really was. There were, there were burning, when we were there, there was not maybe burning incense. There was a lot of smoke outside, kind of a little dome thing with a little area you could burn stuff. And, but the backdrop was these amazing, uh, jagged peaks further up in the distance with snow. So it was just a very strikingly beautiful place or the views from it, certainly. 
And at this point, we're at over 12,000 feet. So you're pretty yeah. high up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Definitely a, a fantastic spot. Uh, really interesting culturally. Definitely worth the trip to get up there. It's sort of a nice highlight at the top part of the Sum Valley. And if you go any further, really, from this spot, you end up in Tibet. I mean, you're pretty much almost to the border at this point. Right. So it's a really neat spot. And then we spent the next couple of days kind of working our way back out of the Tsum Valley and back onto the main trail for Monoslu. And so we, we head all the way back down to about 1,400 meters or a little over 4,000 feet, I guess, a couple of days later. And then we start heading uphill again. And it's basically a climb for many, many days. We're going from you know, somewhere around 1,400 meters all the way to over 5,000 meters over several days. And after a couple of days of heading uphill, uh, the climate starts to change again and the environment starts to change. And you go from the sort of river gorge with bamboo and stuff like that at the start of that climb. And then eventually you're coming out of it into higher elevations. Anything you want to talk about about that part of the trip? I'm, I know I'm kind of skipping through a few days here, but sure. if there's anything you want to talk about, you can. Uh, you know, I I don't think it was really arduous at any point in time. That, that, that's probably one of the nice things about the pacing on this. There's you know there are cut stone steps at various places, uh, and and you're kind of working your way steadily up. You're seeing kind of the mountains, kind of a green area, but I would say the treks, the days themselves, weren't really hard. I think they're well paced. Yeah, I don't know if there's any one particular highlight that comes out. I almost feel like at that point, you're hit, I'm hitting a little bit of a stride of a routine that's familiar. As yeah. the days kind of go by, you know how it works. You get to the tea house, you set up your bedding, you take yeah. a shower, get some water, treat, filter the water, treat the water. It'll be your water in the morning. You're going to have your meal. Maybe it's 5.30 or 6. That's dinner time, right? Uh, so, so there's very much at this, at this point, I feel there's a, a comfortable routine to it. I think that's right. I think when it starts to change is when we get higher up in the mountains. So we got to a place called Namrung, and that was kind of, to me, the border between where it started to feel higher up. And then the next day, I think we got our first view of Monoslu, which is this massive peak. It's the eighth highest peak in the world. And that was sort of, you know, when I started feeling like we're really up in the mountains. And we got to a town called Sayalagon. And when we stayed there for that night, that was a very different kind of feel than what we had been experiencing up to that point. Yes, definitely the, the higher altitude. I remember after we got settled in, walking through, I'll say the village, mm-hmm. there were tourists, kind of tourist shops there, really up there. You know, there are looms people are making, ta- uh, I don't know if you want to call it scarves, but they're making textiles. There were necklaces. There were, it was more touristy in, in some way. Uh, there was a lot of construction going on. You could see more tea houses being built up, but you're also surrounded by these magnificent mountains that's almost you know 270 degrees and so view and up ahead you can see all right that's where i'm headed to it's getting higher it's more snowy you can see where you're headed yeah and it's a good point it does become a little touristy and i think that's because when you get to these higher elevations there's uh the villages with one exception they start to get smaller there's less and less people it's more about the trekkers who are going through the locals, they have animals that they uh, maintain. For example, 
when you're at lower elevations, you see cows. I think I remember in Jagat, cows walking through mm-hmm. the town. And then you get higher up and they become like this sort of half-breed, a little bit hairier animal. And then as you get up to Sialagon, you actually start seeing yaks. Yeah. And you saw houses where the animals lived on the bottom floor and the people lived on the top. So the heat would rise, which is something I've seen in other parts of the world as well. It's a good strategy for keeping the animals safe in the winter and maintaining heat for the people. And that was something that we started to see it at the higher elevations. But something else happened in Sialagon too. This is when I started to get really sick. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you're starting to come down with the cold. Yeah. Yeah. And also a horse ate our apples. Do you remember that? Oh, yes, I, I remember that. And that's actually one of the things our uh, porter, Podum, carried apples and pomegranates, right? So yeah. we, were, we were very lucky. Almost every evening uh, for dessert, there were peeled, sliced apples with pomegranate seeds. So, Which was a fantastic treat after dinner. Yes, and at a certain point, we were also sharing with other People we had met because we were also used to it. But, but yeah, there was a horse that wandered in through a gate. Uh, yeah. I'm actually looking at the photo of the place. There was a stone wall, two-story wooden building. And it went after Podum's bag of apples and, and stuff and <laughs> yeah. was chewing on the bag, right? And yeah. Podum just chased, I want to say, might have threw a rock at the animal. Uh, he was not happy, but I'm like, hey, we, we can still eat those apples. They're all chewed up, but it was only in the bag. It was a burlap bag. <laughs> and so from, from Sialagon heading up toward Larky Pass, which is the high point elevation-wise on the trip, we went through a few more towns. The next major town is Samagon, and that's actually a fairly big town. I was surprised at how big Samagon was for where it is. I mean, it's in a pretty remote location, but it's a fairly good-sized town, and it's sort of the last real town before you get to Larky Pass. That was, I think I spent the entire day there probably in bed trying to recover from being sick. And I think you kind of wandered the town and, and wandered up to a monastery and kind of got the lay of the land. We did do one hike to the Moraine Lake coming off of Montesluz. So we got to see up close this beautiful glacial lake and the glacier coming off of Montesluz. But other than that, I spent most of that day trying to recover. Yeah, you you were you were hit hard, but you were also kind of getting it out. When we started out that morning to get there, it was really cold. I remember having to really layer up the gloves, you know, a jacket, just multiple layers. And then when finally the sun popped out, felt like, okay, I'm uh, feeling warm is good. The lake the lake that we went to is it was it was amazing. And kind of I don't know if, uh, what is it that turquoise mountain color. There were glaciers that had been certainly looking at receding, snow dusted peaks, uh, and and a lot and a lot of people had made like Karens, right? And they were kind of putting things. Yeah. In. there were prayer flags there. Some of it was a little surreal, but it was it was gorgeous. It was definitely memorable. You're essentially right at the base of Montesquieu. I mean, you're looking yeah. from the bottom up to the top of Montesquieu, which is just this enormous peak. Mm-hmm. And then from, from Samagon, we went to Samdo the next day, and we were thinking about going over the pass that day, but I was so sick that even though we stopped at like 10, 30, 11 in the morning for an early lunch, we made the decision to call it a day. And mm-hmm. I think because of acclimatization, that was a good decision as well. 
And we were also ahead of schedule, and that's just because of our, our, our pacing. Uh, Hari, our guide, was able to, to really adjust the schedule. So there's what was planned, and then there was the reality of once you're out on the trail, how are you doing, and, and, you're, and the guide was making adjustments. But I will say one part, and this is, I think, good on you. Our guide just found a place for us, and sometimes, I think you were saying maybe he was just looking for the first place that he came to. Yeah. The first one was a little bit musty and damp. And if you're going to spend all day there, that wasn't really a good choice. And, and you did speak up. He heard you. And we moved to a, a really nice place. Comparatively. Comparatively. <laughs> Comparatively. It was like new. It wasn't, you know, it didn't, wasn't musty. It was new. It was so new that on the second floor we were staying, there wasn't even a railing and you could walk out and fall right <laughs> off of the building. I love that. It was, there was some great night photography there. And there was the big, uh, I think there was, a, uh, there was a helicopter had arrived that day and picked someone up and flew him off. I think I remember that. It was the back of the building where we were staying at, actually. This is very early on. I think you, might, you could have been yeah. asleep too. And so the next night we stay at uh, Dharamsala, which is also called Larky Petty which is essentially not a town, but more of a camp that's at the base of the pass. And that night we actually stayed in a tent because they have these sort of overflow tents that the various guest houses have because in the high season, it kind of gets jammed up with people as they approach the pass. Yes. And so they, they set them up for the season. And I actually preferred that for a night. It was actually nice to, I don't know why, but I, I liked being outside of those little boxy rooms that we had been staying in for so many nights and we had our own tent. No, it, it, was real, it was really nice because the other one was, I think uh, it was a seven person dorm kind of setup. So with the tent, you know, it's an A-frame tent, pegged down. It's a, it kind of permanent if you want to say, but there was, there was a mattress there. It was cushy. We were at about, I don't know, 4,000 something meters. I don't know what the exact altitude was there, but I think it was about 14,500 feet. It was the equivalent of the tallest top of the tallest peak in the lower 48 in the U S and this was where we were staying the night as we approached the pass. Mm -hmm. And how did that go for you, Tony? Oh, it was, uh, it was interesting. It was, uh, so so I had chosen not to take, is it Diamox or, you know, the altitude stuff? Yeah, I yeah the altitude medicine. I thought I was doing really well. In fact, that day, our guide, Ahari, took me higher up overlooking the camp, and I was doing great. Well, things rapidly changed, and it was, uh, I, it was a midnight. I, I left the tent. I went to the outhouse, kind of a stone uh, stall, and... I was kind of looking out of a small little window. It was kind of like a full moon. It was beautiful. And all of a sudden, I had tunnel vision. The walls came in on me. I started hyperventilating. I had a panic attack, flat out. I I just kept going in my mind. It was racing like, I can't can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. There's no oxygen. There's no helicopter. What's going to happen? And things started spinning for me. I actually kind of stumbled out of the... uh, latrine or you know the little stall there uh and had to sit down on a rock and it seemed like a long time maybe it was five minutes or so i just had to force myself to calm down and get my breathing under control but honestly after that i i was freaked out i could not sleep anymore uh i dozed off a few times but because of the altitude i also caught myself kind of like going (gasps) You know, kind of almost gasping for air. Yeah, I, I did not sleep much at all that night. It was, in fact, I got up early around three 
and the people who maintain or were doing the cooking, the cooks, I was just kind of pacing around in the side room next to them just for company because I, I just had to keep, I told myself I had to keep myself focused and wait till everyone's there awake and I can focus on hiking and I'd be okay. And I was, but I did have that freak out moment. Yeah. And I barely knew that it had happened because I had taken my Diamox and I was getting over my cold. I was starting to get over my cold and I actually slept pretty darn well that night. Um, we did have to get up. I think it was at four or four thirty in the yeah. morning because that pass gets very windy later in the day. So most trekkers get up very early and, and head up the pass early in the morning so they can be over before noon. Um, so yeah, that was a pretty interesting night and really there's nothing you can do, right? Yeah. Like you're not, you have to sort of talk yourself down from it. There's really no place to go. You there, can't, there's no way out. Yeah. It's, there's nothing. It's a helicopter <laughs> and at 12 midnight, there's no helicopter, right? And yeah, it's just you. And you don't want to be hiking downhill in the dark by yourself to try to get to lower elevation. So if you can at all figure out a way to get through the night, you should. And it, mm-hmm. you did figure it out. You yeah, talked it out. yourself into realizing that you were going to be okay. Yeah. And I was watching. I had I downloaded some, you know, Netflix or, you know, videos. So I, I watched some TV on my phone to keep me up. But uh, yeah, I admit I was freaked out. I could not go back to sleep. All right. And so we did our hike. The next morning, early in the morning, you on very little sleep, me getting over a cold. So both of us are kind of beat up. <laughs> yeah. But we made some pretty good time and I enjoyed that hike. What did you think of that hike to Larky Pass? Amazing. I really, I, I will, I will always remember it. You know, you have your head, you have your headlights on, a headlamp on, you know, you've got my, I've got my jacket and wind pants, wind shirt kind of layered up. I had my my buff, kind of a little t- little tube that goes around my neck gaiter. It had it over my face to keep my nose and mouth and, and the air that I'm breathing in warm. But it was kind of strange. I mean, it's beautiful. It's dark. There were some people that are ahead of us. But because of the altitude, and this is really the highest I've ever been, you're just kind of going one foot in front of the other. Keep going. Keep going. You know, it's cold, but you're focused. And then the sun comes up. In the distance, it breaks the night, and you can see the outline of of the peaks in the distance, and it's just beautiful as far as you can see. You have that. It, it's rocky, it's barren, and it's. I was, you know, it's numbingly cold. It's part of the experience. I wasn't miserable. I had a battery in my camera. It died. It froze out. We stopped somewhere, and we had tea, hot tea, and I remember I was I was struggling with you know, breathing. And I had gone to, you know, I actually joined a gym three, you know, three months before this and was doing nothing but cardio. And I'm glad I did. That's a good point. It's good. It's a good to remind people that for a trip like this, the better condition you are in, the more likely you are to do better at altitude. Yes. No one knows how they're going to do with altitude until you've been there. Fortunately for you and I, we've been to Mount Whitney, which is just under uh, 14,500 feet. So I had some sense, but I'd never slept at that altitude. And that was what was different. Yeah. You mentioned getting hot tea. I thought that was bizarre that we were halfway up this pass and there's a little stone hut with two guys making tea and coffee. And the reason they were there, we learned, is there were a bunch of tents out back behind them that were set up because it was a base camp for the peak that was right there. So I think they were sort of like the restaurant or the the snack shack kind of set up for the climbers who were set up for this peak that was nearby. 
So that was nice to have, and it got us out of the cold, and it was right as it was starting to get light. Yes. And we made it to the pass fairly early in the morning, Mm -hmm. and I don't even remember the time, so I won't pretend I do. But we made it to the pass at a reasonable hour, and Tony, you could see the pass from miles away, right? You knew exactly where you were going? Um, (laughs) No. (laughs) The best part about this, we're, we're climbing up there. And I can see that I see the prayer flags and I see we're going around the corner and we're going to be right at the pass. And you had this look on your face like, where are we? When are we going to get there? And so I decided to be a good friend and not tell you at all that we were almost there. Um, <laughs> and then you showed up and you were actually quite surprised that we were at the pass. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, just before that, it was a little bit of switchbacks going up there. But before that, it was kind of a sur- what I thought was a little bit surreal. We were on a, a flat, maybe plateau area. And it was sandy. There, I think there was a, a small, I don't know if you call it a pond or a lake. And it was also frozen. So there was sand and ice. And I'm kind of like hiking along and just recounting what had happened to me, freaking out that morning and just going, where are we? I, are we there yet? <laughs> and it turns out we were. And we were. And yeah. to my surprise, a pleasant surprise. But, you know, who also followed us up there? I don't know if you remember. Trekker dog. Yes, the trekker dog for a couple of days. <laughs> this was insane. This, this dog that I think was just sort of a street dog from one of the villages decided to start following trekkers to the pass. And he was doing our pace, I guess. And we got to the pass and this dog shows up. Nobody knows whose dog it is because it's nobody's dog. And the dog made it over the pass, and then we gave it, I think, a couple of cookies. Mm-hmm, biscuits, yeah. And we, we hiked down the rest of the morning. We eventually made it to the next town, Bimtang, by about noon. And then we got settled into our tea house and had lunch and all that. And there's Trekker Dog again. Trekker Dog made it all the way down from, from the pass to the next town. It was quite a sight to see this dog hiking on his own, from one side of the pass, over the top of the pass, and down to the other side. Living off of people. and <laughs> yeah, It was wild. I think, he, I think that dog even slept on our, our little porch in the call it cabin that we stayed in that night. It was, it was pretty wild. Yeah, he slept on my socks, I remember. <laughs> on my dirty socks. Also, hiking up, I, I, I recall, because I have a picture of this, the water in my bottle, smart water bottle, kind of disposable water bottle, turned into slush. There was ice crystals in it. Yeah, it was probably, I don't even want to say for sure, but it was far below 32 Fahrenheit when we started out. So maybe 10 degrees, 15 degrees Fahrenheit. So far below zero Celsius when we started out that morning. It was very cold. I was having a hard time with my hands being cold as we were going up. My gloves were definitely inadequate for Mm -hmm. that. Same. So we got down to to Bim Tang, as I mentioned, and we got into the tea house and we had lunch and then you essentially passed out in the lunchroom and fell asleep. But before, <laughs> but before that's true. Very true. But before that, on the way down, we had a snack. That's true. We had some ramen. Yeah. We stopped for ramen noodles and that was the best ramen I ever had in my life. <laughs> it was awesome. And you're right. I fell asleep hard though. I do remember, tell me if I have this right. I kept hearing this sawing noise, wood sawing all Afternoon while I was, whenever I was sleeping. And if I recall, there was, a, there was a man, there was some lumber, a board, kind of maybe 
a foot or so wide, and he was sawing it in, in down the middle, the whole by way, hand by hand. Yeah, yeah. Holy Toledo! Wow. Yeah, that reminds me of earlier in the trip when we saw a grandmother with a pick breaking rocks to make a gravel path for a new guest house. That's right, a hand sludge. Oh, a sludge. Yeah. Oh, that was crazy. It's like everyone works. I cannot yeah. state that enough here. There are no lazy people out there. <laughs> None. None. You can't be. Can't be. You can't be. Yeah. It, it is it is truly amazing and humbling. And they're they're warm, nice people. There may be yep. certainly poverty, but it's not like I worried about, oh, someone's gonna steal my stuff. No, not gonna happen no. out there. No. We'll skip ahead a little bit. We get toward the end, and it was actually the start of the Diwali holiday. And we made it to, I think it was maybe our last day of hiking. We got to a lunch spot and we were just having our typical doll bot lunch. And two women came in and who were essentially doing like painting on the man who, uh, to decorate him for Diwali. And, um, which was cool for us to see that they were doing their rituals around Diwali. And then what happened, Tony? I, Got painted up, and I had a flower <laughs> wreath garland, and yeah, it was really, it was really wonderful that they just, you know, look, they saw I was very fascinated by it, and they they did me up, and you know, you know, I gave a little little something, and they they didn't ask for anything, but it was really nice. I was walking on the trail wearing flowers and being all painted up. It was kind of neat. It was really something. It was really cool. Yeah, it was actually neat. Um, and you were in the full Diwali spirit on our last day of hiking. <laughs> and we made it to our last town where we, you know, on the last, I should mention on the last couple of days, we were overlapping with the Annapurna circuit. It was sort of the beginning of the Annapurna circuit. So we were seeing a lot more people on the trail. I would say a lot younger crowd mm -hmm. because a lot of Annapurna hikers are people that can't afford or don't want to pay for a guide. And you can do that trail without a guide. Right. So it's kind of a different group of people than we saw mostly on, on the Monoslu circuit. Uh, and we got to, I think it was, I'm not going to say this right, but it's either Chiamsh or Chiamsh is the, I think the last town we ended up stopping in. And Kayachi. then we took another crazy Jeep ride. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That, uh, yeah, that was a fun one. It's like, how many people can we pack in? Yeah, I if I if I recall, I was at the f I was in the front. In this case, in the left hand side, drivers on on the right, and somewhere along the way, we stopped, and the driver picked up a a young woman. Probably, if I were to guess, maybe late teens, early twenties, and she's sitting almost in my lap, next to me, between the driver the gear shift in me. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm really just trying to be polite, not to, to bump into her or, or, you know, you know, be some kind of creepy guy. You could see the dirt road. It just fall off to the side, steep down cheer. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Up to the right. You see these waterfalls coming down. We're driving steep. through the waterfalls. <laughs> like sometimes just driving over the rocks, like literally through the waterfall. Yeah. It was insane. <laughs> and then we got a flat tire. Yes. Oh, and we had gosh. to all get out of the Jeep while they had to fix the tire and put on the, put on the spare. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. And everybody just took it in stride. People riding in the back. There's kind of got a picture of it up here. They kind of got that little metal cage kind of going on with the packs. And that was, you know, there was, that's the high, that's the taxi cab system, right? That, that's how people get in and out. We saw trains of them going back and forth, I guess. 
And then we made it to Bessisar, which is the, the kind of a decent sized city that we stayed in for that night before heading back to Kathmandu the next day. Mm-hmm. Bessisar is also the city where most people doing the Annapurna trek start. So it has a kind of tourism feel to it, a lot of trekking stores and that kind of thing. Um, but it was kind of cool there too, because it was, as we said, during Diwali. Mm-hmm. And we heard this really loud music while we were in our, our room at night when we were ready to crash for the night, but we heard this loud music and we thought we'd check it out. And, and it turned out to be something quite interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, a lot of, uh, I guess we'll call it Christmas lights are being draped or strung down buildings. A lot of music. I think there was maybe dance. I, mean, I think we saw a dance competition of some sort. Yeah, that, that's what the music was. Yeah, it was music. It was a dance competition. And there were a lot of local teenagers who were doing performances that were quite interesting. And we really enjoyed, I think we spent maybe an hour just watching people uh, do this dance competition. Yeah. And, and little side, little side alleys, people were dancing. It was really quite festive and just neat to see people out during one of their cultural things. It was cool. Yeah. It was just um, good fortune that we were there during Diwali and got to see how the Nepalese celebrate Diwali. And so that was, that was very cool. Mm-hmm. And then we made it back to, Kathmandu and had a couple more days there before we left. So Tony, as you look back on this, why is the Monaslu circuit in the Tsum Valley a trek worth doing? For me personally, it was my first trek that I've ever done. And being introduced that, it's just kind of amazing. You get the opportunity to do what I love, being outdoors, like doing day hikes every day, you're not carrying a huge amount. You get an opportunity to experience a different culture probably many because of different ethnic groups. So it's taking two things I love, the outdoors and then travel and seeing other, how people live differently. The fact that you are in places that are so remote, again, maybe no electricity, not a lot of the modern conveniences. How often do you have an opportunity to immerse yourself, granted as a tourist, to kind of experience to get away from what is our modern life and to see what are astounding and ridiculously tall and beautiful mountains like no other. Uh, one gentleman I met, I think it was a Dutch man, he must have been in his 70s. He said, this is my last time. And he'd been there easily 10 or more times. And I can see why. I want to go back. Yeah, I do too. I do too. I've been thinking about that a lot as I've been preparing for this episode. And it does really appeal to me to go back to Nepal. It's such a fantastic place to go hiking. So definitely recommend it to everyone. What is your best memory from the trip? Is there a particular moment or particular place or anything in particular that stands out that when you think about this trip, it's really what you think of? One of the things that stands out, and it's kind of a mixed thing, we were passing through, again, one of the many villages, and there was a young child, a little girl, maybe four years old, and she had her brother strapped on her back who's not even a year old. And at first I looked at her and I said, I mean, the parents must be working. I felt kind of sad, like, well, you're not able to be a kid because you're now babysitting. You've got this young person strapped to your back. But she was laughing and running around and jumping and climbing rocks and going, wow, you do know you have a baby on your back. It just doesn't know. (laughs) And, And there was that. And then the other part, in that moment, just seeing that, the other part that was also a little disturbing is a gentleman, an older gentleman came by, had a big camera, and 
got sort of like kind of waved at all the kids to kind of get together and pose. And he took a bunch of pictures and then boom, he's down the, down the trail. And some of it felt like, gosh, like dance monkey dance and then moving on. That's something I remember. There was a beautiful thing. There was a little bit, I was thinking, okay, I'm, I'm a tourist here. So there's kind of that aspect to it. I remember that too. That was an interesting contrast yeah. that you mentioned. It was kind of a beautiful moment at first. And then this, I think he was maybe Russian or Eastern European of yeah. some kind. I just remember hearing sort of a Slavic language. Mm -hmm. And that gentleman, and I think it was maybe his adult son was with him. And they just, like you said, they just set up quickly. They sort of pulled the kids together for a picture of the locals and then just picked up and ran and ran off basically. Yeah. And that was it. And it was, we didn't stay much longer than that, but it was just an interesting contrast yeah. to see these kids who were just playing and running around. And then they were fully aware of the, the of this game, right? That, yes. that the tourists come and then they pose for a picture and then, and then they, the tourists just move on quickly. It was a little bit of a strange moment. Mm -hmm. And I remember that as well. I, I actually took, I had a little bit of money, a local money and, and I, I gave her some. And she knew exactly what to do with it. So this is like, she's, she's, no, she's like, yeah, pocket it. And you're like, okay. So I'm going, well, right. But it's fine. It's all, it's all kind of good. But it was an interesting, that, that's a moment that definitely stands out. Just seeing that moment in, in that town and the, and the people. What happened on this trip that you didn't expect? I know that's a big question because you didn't know what to expect about any of this. But was there anything that stands out in particular? I mean, you've just mentioned one moment you mm -hmm. probably didn't expect. But there, there may have been others of things that just you didn't expect or things that you would do differently if you went back that you learned from doing this trek. I did have some moments on my own. I had, to, I mean, you went on a, on a trek of this distance and you have time on your own. I had some time to go on my own after lunch and went up to kind of a monastery that was kind of being built. And I had some quiet time for myself. And honestly, I, I was reflecting on a friend of mine who had passed away. Uh, a few years ago. And so I had kind of that personal moment there and, and time to kind of reflect or speak to the wind or, or what have you and, and have that moment there, which I didn't necessarily expect. But it's those little quiet moments you have to yourself and you kind of discover. It's also why I like the outdoors. One thing for me is I, I having done this experience, I'm really excited about the whole concept of trekking. I want to take my wife on that. It's doing the outdoors without having to, in many ways, rough it. Absolutely. Although I think our wives would both think of this trip as roughing it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was just going to ask you what you think about trekking versus backpacking, but I think you've just answered it. But for a backpacker, this is a little bit of luxury. You've got meals being cooked for you. You've got a place yeah. to sleep with a roof over your head. But I think for, for most people, it is still a pretty rustic adventure. Yes. And the other thing I'll comment, comment on too is just in terms of the people we meet, something became apparent to me as we were going through. The people that you meet who are, are trekkers are not necessarily backpackers. They may, we may dress the same, but the skill sets or experiences or how one approaches this can be very different because of the, those experiences or backgrounds. I think you're absolutely right about that. And that's something I've talked about on the show. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to do this show to begin with is I thought that it would be fun to do a show that had both backpacking trips and trekking trips because I feel like those are both great experiences, but I do feel like to some extent they are separate communities and they don't always, they're not always the same people. 
And there are lots of people who do multiple treks who would never think of doing a backpacking trip. And there are lots of backpackers who think that a backpacking trip has to be out in the wilderness by themselves and would never do a trek where they would stay in a hostel or a tea house or even a hotel, God forbid. It is interesting to see that dynamic at play. There are people like us who do both. We're not the only ones out there. Um, we met a guy from from the Bay Area. I think his name was Adam, who was a scientist from the Bay Area. And we were trekking along with him for a few days. And I remember talking to him about backpacking as well. So there are some people out there who certainly do both. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It, it is kind of a separate activity in a lot of ways. It does have a more cultural component to it. Uh, from the treks I've done in different parts of the world, it does feel like that. And so it is nice to be able to do both and to get something slightly different out of each experience. And again, it's, that's why I'm doing the show. I want people to be inspired to do both of those activities. All right, Tony, while I have you though, I've got a few more questions. Okay. All right. If you go trekking again, where are you going to go? Where am I going to go trekking? Uh, I might follow in your footsteps and maybe do something in Europe. Uh, I've heard also Italy has some places. I don't know the names. I haven't researched. But uh, from what you described, the one that you did, was it, uh, what was it called? Oh, yeah, we did the Tour de Mont Blanc, which is sort of the most famous one in Europe. But there are, uh, yeah, you wanted to bring your wife. Mm -hmm. And I think Nadezdi would love some of the treks that have some really nice guest houses. And there are some places in Italy, Austria, Germany, France, places like that, that have just some fantastic guest houses Mm -hmm. that are really, really nice. And, and that's a kind of, you know, they call them refuges or refugios or depending on which country you're in. Yeah. That I think you guys would really love a trip like that, like on the Alta Via or something like that in, in Italy. It mixes history. I love history, obviously old world, if you want to call it that. So yeah, I think that would be kind of a, a really neat opportunity to do kind of the, uh, maybe the opposite in some ways of Nepal, which is very, you know, rustic for sure. Yeah. What about gear wise? You've now done a big trek mm-hmm. and you've done a lot of backpacking over the years there's a tendency to just sort of think, well, I know how to pack for backpacking, so I'll bring my backpacking gear. Is there anything people should think about where trekking is really a different animal than backpacking in some ways, and they should think about different gear choices? Yeah, I think a lot of the stuff that I brought along was my backpacking gear. I used my 22-degree my Fahrenheit uh, quilt that worked out nicely. What was certainly different is the travel sheet or the hostel sheet. A definite must, I would say. Uh, there is the luxury of bringing more clothing on a trek. Obviously, if you have a porter, even without a porter, you're not carrying a tent, you're not carrying a stove, you're not carrying food. But even at the end, if I kind of reflect back, I brought two pairs of pants, one a little bit heavier than the other, I thought made for the cold weather. Didn't need the second pair of pants, really didn't. I did laundry along the uh, on the way. I wouldn't bring... The huge, ridiculously large battery pack that I had for my phone and camera, because <laughs> there was power really. I mean, maybe one day without power, possibly, or two, but it really wasn't an issue. So I, I brought this large 20 or 30 milliamp battery pack and was unnecessary, really was. Yeah, you could have powered some of these uh, entire villages with your battery pack. <laughs> they have a lot of solar out there. You do see, yeah, we did see a lot of solar. 
Yeah. No, but you're right. I, I think I had a very small battery pack, which only gave maybe a couple of charges worth extra. And I thought that was actually a perfect solution because mm-hmm. there are, like you said, times where maybe there's a day or two in between places where there was, at least on Monoslu, you know, if you're on Annapurna, there's probably power the whole way. Mm-hmm. But if you're on some of the trucks that are a little bit more remote, a little bit more rustic, it is good to have the ability to bridge a couple of days if you want to keep your phone charged to be able to take pictures or if you want to, you know, be able to communicate if there's a, a Wi-Fi option somewhere there, where there's um, not a power option. And also some places they actually, I guess there would always be power if there's Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. but some places they actually charge you for using the power. Right. So maybe that's another thing. If you find a place where it's free and you want to save a few dollars or right. a few rupees, you could, uh, you could do that as well. But you're right. I think you could probably get away with without the massive battery pack that you brought. Right. Packing my fears. I was afraid of for photography or whatever. I'm going to run out of power. No, not really. All right. Last question. Favorite Nepali food? Momos. 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 Yeah. And so momos are, are dumplings. Mm-hmm. They make them in different styles with different meats or vegetarian versions as well. And they are fantastic. Yeah. I highly recommend them. They come with a great little spicy sauce, a little orange-ish spicy sauce. And we didn't eat them every day, right. but we did have them whenever we felt a little extra hunger and we had powered through a big dinner and we're still hungry. We could get a plate of Momo's. Very satisfying. Can't go wrong. Very satisfying. They wrong. hit the spot. Mm-hmm. No. Going back on maybe gear and clothing, I'd say that my luxury piece was bringing a really puffy down jacket in addition to my normal lighter weight stuff. So that, yeah, because... What is certainly, I'd say, different maybe if the trekking is that there's going to be more, maybe more downtime if you choose to do it that way. When you and I are often doing the backpacking, it's from morning till basically dinner time, right? With the trekking, there there can be a lot of standing around and socializing. So having a, a nice, warm, puffy jacket is something I may I would not necessarily take backpacking unless they're doing winter, I guess, which is not my thing. But yeah, that, I would definitely take that. That's good advice. Tony, thanks for coming on the show and talking about our trip to Nepal. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's, it's really fun to kind of relive this with you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And I hope that Tony and I have inspired you to hike the Manaslu circuit. Keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. And so when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Before we leave, I want to remind you about Outdoor Herbivore. Outdoor Herbivore sells great vegan and vegetarian backpacking meals. But as I always say, you don't need to be a vegetarian or vegan to love them. The meals are are great either way. They have lots of calories, uh, so really good to have on the trail for a hungry hiker. They have healthy ingredients, and they're packaged in in boil-in-a-bag packaging so that when you're backpacking, you can heat them quickly with boiling water by just pouring it into the bag, stirring, and sealing the bag for about 10 minutes. Trails Worth Hiking listeners get 10% off their order at Outdoor Herbivore. Enter the code TWH10P, Trails Worth Hiking 10%, to get your discount. That's Outdoor Herbivore at OutdoorHerbivore.com. 
All right. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we take our first trip to the American South. We cross rivers and see some of the highest waterfalls in the eastern United States and go up and down 14,000 feet over five to seven days on a 77-mile journey through forest and ridges of the Appalachian foothills. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Foothills Trail in upstate South Carolina in western North Carolina. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail you've hiked, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So that's it for this episode. But before we go, I'm going to leave you with some of the sounds of Nepal. During our trip, Tony recorded a lot of video, and I took the audio from a few of those just to give you a little sense of what Nepal is like, and you'll be able to hear that as we end the show. There's four different clips. The first one is going to be the sound of traffic in Kathmandu and trying to cross a busy street, which may not be the most beautiful sound, but I think it'll give you an idea of crazy, chaotic Kathmandu. The second audio clip is of a Jeep ride to the trailhead, and so you'll hear our driver's music and sort of jostling and bouncing around on the the Jeep track. Then you'll hear a cow wander by as Tony and I are on a break and our guides are hanging out with us on the trail. And finally, you'll hear a pack train of yaks uh, walking by as we're hiking. And with that, that's it for this episode. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.